Panel number two is economic development from basket case to emerging economy. And the moderator of this panel is Dr. Lincoln Chen. Hi. Dr. Chen is the uh, president emeritus of China Medical Board, a Rockefeller Endowed American Foundation. Uh, Dr. Chen, I'd like to turn it over to you. Thank you, uh, Chelsea, and welcome. Um, I'm not sure whether everybody's on, but um, um, uh, you know, just to, Marty and I were in Bangladesh at Independence, and we've been back ever since on a regular basis. Uh, and of course, we saw Bangladesh when it was called a basket case, uh, and also described as overpopulated and poor with no hope for the future. Indeed, uh, we witnessed the 1975 famine when the Bamaputra River flooded uh, particularly northern parts of Bangladesh, led to a lot of hunger and death. Uh, but obviously, the country has pushed on to becoming a, quote, emerging lower middle income uh, country. So the questions that we're going to focus on with this panel are, has Bangladesh had economic success? And if so, why and how? And then what are the prospects for the future? And I think we should keep in mind the last panel with Professor Rahman Saban and Ronak Jahan, who spoke quite a bit about the social justice dimensions of the economic developments uh, in Bangladesh. But I'm going to offer some brief introductions of the panelists uh, and their full CVs are, going to, are available on the website. The first speaker will be uh, Faisal Ahmed, who's a senior economist at the IMF, and he had been a senior advisor to the governor of the Bangladesh Central Bank. The second would be Hussein Zilor Rahman, who is the founding chair of the Power and Particip Participation Research Center in Bangladesh. He's also the chair of BRAC Bangladesh. The third will be Sajida Sajida Amin, who is a senior associate at the Population Council. She's undertaken studies of demography, economics, and sociology, especially related to gender and work opportunities. And finally, we have Mushfik Mubarak uh, Ahmed, who's a development economist, a professor at Yale, whose work has been involved in studying the importance of behavior and technology, and especially poverty reduction. We have all together uh, 70 minutes. We're going to have an opening round of questions where I've uh, the panelists have agreed that each will take four minutes. And I have my iPhone here that has a little ringer <laughs> when the four minutes are up. So I'll just remind people that four minutes are up. And then uh, I've been asked to note that this is a personal academic uh, conversation. So no one is speaking on behalf of their institutions to which they're affiliated. So with that, let me invite um, uh, Faisal to start. Uh, good morning. Good evening. It's an honor to be part of this panel. Uh, thanks to the Mittal Institute for arranging this. As a child of the 1970s, um, let me recall the freedom fighters of 1971 who gave their lives so that we can live ours with dignity and freedom. For me, as a macroeconomist, Bangladesh is a 
uh, Bangladesh story is a bottom-up story. It's a story of consistent and cumulative progress over the last five decades that came from close collaboration between government, people, government, public sector, uh, NGOs, and development partners. Most hearteningly, it's a story powered by women and has been uh, empowering for women. So in 1971, Bangladesh was the uh, most densely populated, as Lincoln mentioned, uh, and the second poorest country world of, in the world. The poorest was Burkina Faso, today's upper Volta, but that had population of um, uh, 5 million. And there was perennial fear of famine, flood, and food shortages. Bangladesh's economic progress came despite, and I would argue precisely because of those extreme initial conditions, which gave uh, Bangladesh the focus, the discipline, and the curiosity, uh, at least during the first three decades. So looking back, in addition to the hard work by the people and, and very supportive policies of the government over the decades, three macro factors in my view drove Bangladesh's economic success. Independence in 1971, our extreme initial conditions, and like many positive economic stories, a dosage of luck and right timing in terms of being part of two globalization, one in the 1970s to late 1980s, and then another one from 1990s until the global financial crisis. And in my view, we are also very lucky that we didn't have any commodity resources or we were not a geopolitical flashpoints. During the first 20 years, during the 1970s and 90s through 80s, the first wave of globalization sowed the seeds of manpower uh, remittance and garments export. The fear of famine created a focus on uh, food security, agriculture, and population control. Um, extreme poverty and sufferings invited local solution in health, education, and famine, thanks to the pioneers of our social innovations. Uh, we remember them with honor. The inspiration of 1971 and the desperation of 1970s and 80s uh, gave birth to the innovation and the pioneers of social innovation themselves were the product of 1971. And I should, I should mention that the economic progress in demographic transition and the fertility through the late 1980s allowed improvement in human development indicators, laying the foundations for the broader takeoff that came in in 1990s onwards, when the remittance, uh, garments, um, then agriculture, and I should last mention that the domestic market integration, they both reinforced and amplified each other, reducing poverty. If we look at the last 30 years, and if we think of the relative role the big factors have played, remittance probably played the biggest role in terms of simple arithmetic of the amount of external demand, and then came um, garments. And remittance, garments, uh, and agriculture, they all touched many lives. Now, where are we now? After 50 years uh, at our Silver Jubilee, we have Bangladesh has, uh, has uh, uh, fed its people. It's, uh, in my view, it's the most bottom up among the larger economies uh, and, and sort of manufacturing led takeoff. Low value added, yes, low cost and labor intensive, but it has created jobs. But I should mention that as we look ahead, the growth drivers that has supported the first 40 years have been shifting. Since 2012, remittance, 
garments ex garments export remittance have been actually moderating is becoming a smaller driver of growth so there is a shift in the drivers of growth that we need to be mindful and this is where professor sobhan's uh, emphasis on governance becomes extremely important and looking ahead as we celebrate the silver jubilee let me um, let me part with the quote of uh, professor amartoshan that i really love about bangladesh's success he said bangladesh's laudable success uh, uh, comes from the comes from the fact that it has avoided the twin dangers of uh, 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 twin dangers of inertia and smugness the future will demand more from these virtues thank you very much thank you very much faisal for staying within time and you gave a very good landscape please zilor thank you thank you i want to start by saying that where we are now it's uh, is being celebrated around the world and amongst the uh, within the country that from a basket case an emerging economy and more future ahead the first point i want to make is that this was not a planned outcome because i think the story of bangladesh is more a initiative driven story rather than a policy driven story i think that's a foundational feature of bangladesh's journey we need to keep in mind and how did this come about and i think that's where uh, faisal has touched on it i'm sure professor wan also touched on it 1971 has been seen in many ways in many aspects but it had a lasting impact in triggering what i would call a personality revolution in the country our people used to be fatalistic they became aspirational over time and bangladesh's journey this transition from a basket case to emerging economy it was actually driven by this aspiration innovations and of course uh, policy also played a role but the initiative driven part of it is a very foundational feature i want to you know uh, extract four lesson old stories within this transformation journey first one is about you know bangladesh was defined by its as a victim of disasters and i think the wonderful transformation is that the disaster victim has become the disaster manager and there are two sort of disasters to refer to 1970 bola cyclone 300000 deaths 1998 the flood of the century deaths restricted to 1070 and that too mainly from snake bites and drowning so this disaster victim to disaster manager was a wonderful sort of transition the second was and this has not really been commented upon by many that our first connectivity revolution were the rural feeder roads which connected the villages and towns and really transformed a rural urban divide into a rural urban continuum and that created the condition for a domestic economy the rural non farm sector is a very important part of bangladesh's economic journey the third one of course is women's agency being unleashed this wasn't unleashed just by uh, by an announcement i think there were two fundamental uh, descriptions of how this agency was unleashed one was that i think this is sajida territory to somewhat 
the reproductive burden at birth was about 6.3 children per woman. It was reduced to 2.3. And this essentially freed women and transformed them into economic aspirants. It is a fantastic thing that women has gone into garments, women have embraced the microcredit revolution, and women have gone abroad. They are a bulk of the migrants. So this was a third feature. And the fourth is also uh, not very commented upon, is that if you look at our literacy rate, it's still very uh, below 60%. But an illiterate peasantry has embraced the potentials of technology. The transformation, the mechanization of agriculture is one of the lesser told stories of Bangladesh. So this has really been a fantastic transformation. And Bangladesh's transformation actually rests on three pillars, I would say. And that's a slightly different take on the journey. One is, of course, was the usually referred to as the growth drivers, remittance, garments, etc. But an equally important one is the domestic economy, the non-tradable sectors. These trade services, construction, rural non-farm, they have been, in fact, I calculated that in the, 20, uh, the last decade, 61% of incremental growth came from this sector. And of course, the third one was the protecting the rear, meaning that Bangladesh really excelled in ensuring food security and also our safety nets work well. And I think under two working consensus, national consensus worked to try and bring us to the state. One was famine prevention. I think Lincoln got the date wrong. It was in 1975, it was 1974 actually, the famine. Mm. And uh, that really triggered the type of response within society that we can never allow famines to happen again in Bangladesh. And we have actually never allowed famines to whatever have been the uh, disasters. And the other one, which is also a very important one, is that a sort of the change agents have been pluralistic. Market, state, private sector, NGO, social sector, government. So these two working consensus really underpinned. But now we are at a stage where we are looking ahead. And I think one of the way of thinking that we have to change is that now when you think about Bangladesh, it should not be about where we have come from, but where we want to go. Because we are still caught in that mindset of uh, basket case to emerging economy. But I think we need to now look ahead. And there, certain questions, of course, have emerged. And I uh, just allude to two potential risks. But as I said, it's risks, but Bangladesh, where we will end up, remains open. But I think the human capital agenda remains a very critical agenda. And we are, uh, that remains for me the biggest challenge as Bangladesh enters a new decade. And there, the issue is not only investment. Professor Roman Soban mentioned among governance. I see the governance issue is not just about political governance. It's about this found critical variable about human capital and how we resolve that. That is, I think, a critical issue. I will end there. And thank you. Speak. Thank you. So um, you've got a list here of from victim to manager, uh, gender, uh, rural urban continuum. 
and um, the whole question of um, moving forward with human capital. Well, let's move on to Sajida. Thank you, uh, Lincoln, and uh, hard act to follow uh, Faisal and uh, Zillurbhai, um, but um, because they've uh, covered a lot of what I would have said. Um, so to pick up on Faisal, I think uh, in terms of thinking about um, the last 50 years, uh, it is useful to think of the period, separate periods, distinct periods. Uh, Faisal mentioned two kind of uh, pre and post uh, the millennial. Um, I would um, I would put a finer point to it. Um, uh, recalling Sir Abed, um, I remember he would talk about the agenda for BRAC in terms of 80s was the decade of health and 90s is going to be the decade of education. I'm dating myself by talking about uh, when uh, this conversation took place um, in the 80s when I first met um, Sir Abed. Um, and I think going back even before then, um, both Zillur and Faisal mentioned the, the importance of recovery, the importance of policies that were never again policies. And I think um, uh, part of that was an emphasis on population uh, control, um, whatever the motivations were, uh, I think it resulted in a very healthy uh, program of family planning after much uh, introspection and reform. Um, the, and then, but the critical period was uh, the 90s in terms of shifting a focus on education. And all through this, I think the important uh, dimension to note is the centrality of thinking about inclusion of women, thinking about uh, not thinking about women as a footnote to the whole issue of uh, development, but being central to the issue of development. And so it's ironic that when we um, have this discussion, um, we still want sort of gender parity in terms of representation, but really we are talking about how to keep women at the center in a context where women don't have that pride of place um, that uh, in terms of patriarchal value structure that we want uh, to reform and promote. Um, so I think, um, I want to um, I want to um, now turn and talk briefly about um, the trajectory that has happened since the 2000s, um, which others have not yet mentioned, which is the whole idea of demographic dividend, that we're reaping the benefits of the investments in uh, population uh, family planning in health. We've had. Uh, women's survival, women's life expectancy since the 70s has improved by nearly 25 years. That's phenomenal by any standard. Um, women live three years longer than men. Uh, women live on average, can expect to live to be 73, men around 70. So um, I think that basically is an indicator of profound investments in public health in particular, not so much in, in, in the rest of the health sector, perhaps. And also there is gender parity in education. So um, I think uh, these are two factors that have led to um, eventually, uh, with a slight lag, 
greater um, inclusion of women in the economy, which in terms of kind of the demographic dividend story uh, is identified as the critical element of the Asian miracle um, and how uh, economies that invested in education, economies that invested in human capital uh, were um, the fastest to grow and to take advantage of this demographic dividend idea. Um, we are at a juncture um, that where we are um, now at the most favorable uh, level of uh, dependency ratios. Um, and uh, that's because the child dependency ratio is continuing to decline, but the uh, old age dependency ratio is rising. And so we have to think differently about social protection issues, about intergenerational transfers, to move forward. Um, I'll end there. Thank you, Sajida. Uh, but let me turn now to uh, Mushfik. Um, and, and then we'll, when Mushfik is finished, I'd like to invite the panelists to add another one minute if they want to on the comments of the other panelists so that you can speak to each other as well as to the uh, audience. Thank you. Mushfik. Okay, uh, thanks very much, Lincoln, for uh, uh, hosting us and, and for Harvard for organizing and the other panelists. And uh, a lot has been said. I, I agree with all the comments that uh, Faisal Bhai, Zilur Bhai, Sajidapa just shared with us. So, I mean, since I teach, maybe what I, the best I can do is just like weave a narrative that will touch on a lot of the themes that have already come up to help the audience see kind of the picture of how, how this happened uh, sequentially. And, uh, and in the end, maybe I'll just add one more one more factor that hasn't been highlighted as much as I think it should. So yeah, so, so to weave that narrative, you know, let's start with, um, let's stay in a celebratory mood of, you know, why is it that we're doing well? It was a basket case and, uh, and this has been a good week and the United Nations just recommended that Bangladesh uh, be graduated out of LDC status. So it's something that we should we should be celebrating. So now if you look at, okay, why this happened, the proximate causes are, you know, two types of exports, you know, of course, ready-made garment sector, which accounts for like, over 80% of our uh, exports, that's obviously a big part of the story. And the other big export that we have are uh, our other important resource, human beings. Uh, and by that, I mean remittance, uh, which, which has always been a large share of our GDP and foreign exchange earnings. Okay. So now, why, uh, why have we been so successful in these two particular sectors, right? Um, I think one important factor, as uh, Sajidapa highlighted, is uh, female labor force participation has been very, very high. Right? And this is this is something that explains our success relative to our neighbors, India and Pakistan, right? Which started out as much richer countries. Uh, you, you'll you'll see big differences in female labor force participation. All right. So how, and and what's nice about that, you know, people talk about the fact that Bangladesh has a competitive advantage in terms of low wages. Yes, if you can make productive use of half of your population uh, when other countries can't, and, and, and that half of the population has relatively few outside options, right, then of course that's going to give us a competitive advantage, right? Um, and, you know, but you also need productivity. You need, you need the workforce to be productive. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that there have been great investments in human capital. So, for example, female school enrollment has been high. You know, that was set, gender parity in education was set as a goal by the world um, for 2015 as part of the Millennium Development Goals, right? And Bangladesh achieved that 
20 years advance, in advance of that deadline. By mid-1990s, primary school enrollment of girls started exceeding that of boys, right? Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a goal that many other developing countries are still struggling with. And um, so that's one aspect of human capital. And I should say that, like, I, I don't want to argue that it's just a, that's the cause, right? That's also a consequence. When parents see that, oh, there are factory jobs, there are manufacturing jobs available, they themselves become more likely to put their daughters in school because now, you know, if, 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 if your daughter has numeracy, literacy skills, they can actually turn that into um, uh, economic returns because there are jobs available that reward those skills. And the second thing is that uh, we've plucked a lot of the low-hanging fruit, uh, much better than our neighbors in other developing countries. So like, for example, vaccination rates are very high, right? So very simple reasons for female morbidity, infant mortality, et cetera, we've done really well in, in taking away. Um, and okay, and why did that happen? So I'm just kind of trying to go back in time to try and understand like where, where the productivity comes from, okay? So it, it, why did that happen? It's that, um, you know, the government also always played a role, but many other actors did as well. So NGOs, for example, NGOs, large NGOs like BRAC, but many, many other, hundreds of others working in many different corners of the country, they also uh, did well. And the government's big achievement here was allowing NGOs to operate with minimal interference. Right? And this is something I, I work in multiple countries and I run projects often via governments or NGOs. Uh, and I've seen that in Bangladesh, it's much easier for us to get things done quickly, efficiently, right, without a lot of interference. Whereas when I go and run the exact same project in Indonesia, it's not possible for us to even have a conversation somewhere in a, in a locality without having central government approval for every step, right? So it allows you to be a lot more nimble. Okay. Okay. So that, those are, I think those are important parts of the story that others have highlighted. Let me just add one more going back to some comments that Faisal Payet made earlier, which is about agricultural productivity, right? And I think technology adoption, the green revolution did a lot for us uh, as it did for the rest of South Asia. Um, so when I was growing up, uh, so in the eighties, I remember on BTV on Bangladesh television, there were lots of talk shows where we'd discuss challenges, including um, like experts coming in the talk shows and uh, talking about food insecurity. We're struggling to feed the 100 million people. The population's projected to increase to 150 million. How on earth will we feed all these people, right? And it's true, the population has increased to 150 or more, right? But food insecurity has not been a concern. And one important reason it hasn't been a concern is that agricultural productivity doubled or in some areas tripled where we figured out how to um, you know, using drought resistant varieties of new seeds, we figured out how to take the same plot of land and have two or three crop cycles. And, and that's a story again of technology adoption. So there were new technologies, the fact that they were invented was important, but the fact that they diffused through the country was also very important. And all of these different social factors that we've been discussing was uh, allowed us to uh, disseminate and diffuse the technology quickly, uh, relatively quickly. Uh, and I think that was also important. So, um, so we're all celebrating here, which is fantastic. Um, but it's also the case that just because we're telling these positive stories, that there are some important challenges that remain. And I hope for the rest of the panel, we'll be able to turn to those because we need to look forward and, and stay on this trajectory and identify the right problems to solve. Thank you, Mushfik. And let me just now invite Faisal Zulur, uh, Sajida, and Mushfik, if you want to add a one-minute comment on any of the other speakers. Faisal, you all set? Yeah. 
Let me just add, highlight a point that I touched on last time. For the last eight to 10 years, the growth drivers in Bangladesh is shifting if you look at the numbers. Export to GDP, remittance to GDP, agricultural productivity has been softening. So if you look at decade in the 2000 to 2010 or 12 versus now, it's much slower now. So that's something, the growth number is shifting, meaning a lot of this growth number is driven by domestic demand. And that I think needs to be part of the broader macro conversation. On the topic that Sajid Appa, Mushfiq and Hussein Bhai mentioned, I think that on health and education, we have done well, but if we look at uh, India spends 50% more than on health and education than us, Vietnam three, three times more. So at the stage we are in now, there is significant ramp up. That's where the fiscal revenue will come. When you had the highest growth rate in the world, we have the lowest tax to GDP ratio in the world. So we are in a sort of a cross current as we celebrate the graduation from LDC, it's going to be very challenging uphill. Zilor. I want to touch again on the issue of human capital and education. I think that's, you know, we have done well and the everyone has recognized that we have done the investment and all that. But if I take the 50 year, sort of perspective. Education used to be the driver of social mobility in Bangladesh. Today, quality divided in education is the key driver of inequality. That's a sort of a type of transformation which we need to factor in. So when we talk about our education attainment, I think it's now important to unpack between primary, secondary, and tertiary, particularly in secondary education the pre-workforce phase. There, the quality issue is very, very critical. And even the public investment there is actually, uh, is a great question mark. Quality and the quality issue is not just an investment issue. I think the education as a whole, I have a sense that we uh, may be focusing too much on the earlier decades in terms of where we are regarding the human capital agenda we really need to take a hard look at what are the new challenges. And the challenges are not to be solved by the way we did the, you know, getting children into school. World Bank has come up with this idea of, uh, that schooling is not equal, equivalent to learning. I mean, you can have schooling of 12 years, but learning of five or six years. And I think Abed, by Jason Abed, who uh, played a role in getting, you know, uh, focusing on educational access at the beginning of his career, really later, we we'll began to focus on this issue of quality, which is a critical one. And I think going ahead, this is what will determine whether we do uh, break out of the so-called middle-income trap. Thank you. Please, Sajida. Yeah, so the one thing that we haven't really mentioned and it's going to loom large in our horizon is urbanization. We're going to be 50% urban, but we still talk and think about Bangladesh as essentially a rural economy because I, our identity, our present identity, as Rangnapapad talked about, is essentially that. And I think we need to think not as a divided world, rural and urban Bangladesh, but what are the connectivities there? I think a lot of um, issues around remittance, around maintaining a rural base is fundamental to our uh, Bangladeshi value system that we need to embrace and celebrate. 
But um, we also need to think about this very quickly because uh, not just Dhaka, but the entire country is urbanizing at an extremely rapid rate. And not nothing of what we talk about, whether it's education or health, actually fully takes into account what's happening in urban areas. Thank you. Please, Mushfik. Yeah, um, I'm glad uh, Sajidava mentioned this because, um, I mean, we're now segueing into thinking about some of the new challenges of, uh, uh, like, like urbanization is going to be one. Uh, let me just uh, make a observation around what the four of us did. Like we, we all each, you know, did not uh, discuss this in advance. We talked about what the drivers of growth were. And the, uh, a little bit of a worrying thing is that we all came up with the exact same things. Right. We just heard the same thing over and over. And why that worries me is that that means that maybe lack of diversification, if we can all identify just one or two or three factors as underlying drivers, right, then lack of diversification may be a challenge that we need to grapple with. Right. If all of us talk about remittances and migrants and garments, right, that's actually um, uh, something to worry about. Okay, well, you know, it seems like all of you have started turning the leaf to the next question, which I would ask you to give two minutes to, which is, what are the prospects for the future, and especially the questions of sustainability and with social justice in the economic portfolios as it unfolds? Please proceed. Faisal, two minutes, okay? I think there is good momentum. Um, couple of things have happened. There is a certain industrial base. There is an industrial class. Farmers and the economies are much more connected. And I also feel that Bangladesh has a unique advantage, uh, which I like to call it density dividend. Basically, the proximity of people that has helped social innovation, market integration, diffusion of ideas, quite unique in many ways. Um, uh, building on Sajidapa, I feel that Bangladesh is growing from the largest village in the world in the 1970s so sort of largest city in the world messy uh, but that's that's that was my impression after going back working there um, for some time so i think that challenge is going to be how do we move as as Mushfik also meant how do we diversify and also the technology uh, use because technology is shifting this low value added garments manufacturing. I think there is a big paradigm. So that that's something we will need to focus on. I think what we need, if we want to leverage domestic demand to grow, Bangladesh will need two engines. It's not going to be like Southeast Asia that has happened in the previous decades. So those two things I would say, and for many of this education investment, we can't do any of those unless we significantly ramp up our capacity of the state, revenue of the state, efficiency and quality of the expenditure. So I think there is a good example of large infrastructure investment that we have done in last 10 years, but we need to do how efficiently we're doing. In power sector, you know, there is a large increase in capacity, but 50% of this is remaining sort of unutilized. So this sort of large infrastructure and also the infrastructure investment, how do we improve the quality of expenditure? Because that will determine the quality of health, education, all the public services. We have entered the phase of public quality, perfect services. Without that, the middle income transition um, is very difficult. So Thank you. We, I think we have success to be confident, but what we need is a lot more openness and humility. Thank you. Thank you. Zulur. Yeah. Well, I think the most important resource for Bangladesh in the next phase two 
will be its innovative spirit and its aspirational citizenry. I mean, I am particularly not too concerned about the which type of sectors might come forth. We didn't know about government really coming forth as a key driver. It did come. People took out the opportunity. So I see the more the uh, two uh, areas where to we need to really focus. One, again, I come back to the human capital issue because there is this statistics, which is 30% uh, of the youth are not in employment, education, or training. So you have, on the one hand, this issue about we have the MDG attainments, but the SDG educational goals are of a different order, actually. So unless we get the human capital agenda right, and the Sajeda mentioned the demographic uh, dividend window, and that's just another decade, actually, essentially. And critical there is the governance issue. And I think here I will uh, connect this to my final point, which is that what has underpinned Bangladesh's journey so far was a working consensus across society of pluralistic sort of initiative space. You know, market, private sector, government, NGOs, social actors could work as they found opportunities in. There has been a sort of a, in the last decade, there has been a sort of a transformation in that, uh, in that reality where the, there has been, for example, I would say that certain key sectors of the economy seem to have now uh, set with entry barriers. And you have a sort of a problem about the competitive opportunities being curtailed. I think we really need to really focus on this. And also the social space. You know, nevertheless, as I said, Bangladesh's future is going to be determined by three factors. One is innovations, one is aspirations, and the third is economic governance. The first two are remain abundant in supply. The second one, you know, is evolving over time. And if I see the five decades, I would see two decades as the, two of these five decades as the turning points. You know, the 90s where, where we really began to take off in multiple indicators. But the last decade, you know, in certain way, the growth elasticity of uh, the poverty has gone down. And as I said, the human capital agenda is in a certain reality and we seem to be stagnating on the tax uh, GDP ratio. Uh, context. Even private investment has been stagnating. So we have to really get these two out. I, in that sense, the challenge as we go forward, that in the last five decades, initiatives really brought us this far. But in the next two decades, initiatives and governance have to work even more closer together if you are to reap the benefits. And I think Bangladesh people are ready to make the next uh, change in their journey. Thank you. Thank you. Please, Sajida. One is um, on the question of human capital. Uh, I completely agree that uh, we need skills, we need some way of marrying skills with technology, but we really haven't cracked the code on how to skill. I think some of the old models of trained, skills training, specific sectoral ones, are, have clearly been shown not to work. What has been shown to work in 
limited ways is the whole uh, question of soft skills, um, particularly with regard to women and uh, women's success um, in economic terms. The other that's a much bigger headache for me, and I think it should be for Bangladesh and we have not mentioned at all, is kind of the negative driver of climate change, uh, particularly from the coastal belt, uh, the, the, the component of migration that is not so positively driven um, by the need for a better future, seeking a better future, but only in the sense of being pushed off the land. And I think unless we crack that code of how you address climate adaptation and how you address transformative adaptation, we are really not going to sustain this growth trajectory that we are celebrating today. Thank you, Mushfik. Yeah, um, and again, I'll have to um, uh, draw on a lot of things that have been mentioned, but I'd like to think about the challenges and how to address them. So the one big challenge, and I'll use the same words that the other panelists have used, like diversification, innovation, governance, urbanization, et cetera. Okay. The first challenge is that this year has made it very, very clear to us that, that diversification is important because some uh, shocks are aggregate shocks. Like, like there's a global pandemic that can actually wipe out an entire industry, right? It's not just about wiping out a particular factory. It's like there can be disruptions that say that if you rely on one particular thing, it can just get wiped out. Just as an example, right? If this pandemic happened to be, uh, if, if the virus happened to be a little bit more um, contagious, right? It would have stopped all types of cross-border movement, right? And if you rely on just migrants and remittances, that's a big shock. It, it would have, it, you know, as, as happened early in March 2020, it could lead to huge disruption in the flow of particular goods like, uh, like textiles and ready-made garments, right? Because that's not the first thing that people are, 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 are in people's minds when, um, how I'm going to buy clothes. So that means that we, you know, diversification is going to be really important, and this year underlines why. Okay, so how do you diversify? You do need to move into new sectors. That means innovation, a word that uh, Zilurba used, is really important. Okay, but here I want to uh, warn my fellow citizens that you know you cannot have, you cannot innovate well if people don't have freedom of expression. Right, those two things go hand in hand. Right, people need to have the freedom to think about new ideas, to actualize new ideas, right? And if you want to expand the frontier, if you want to create new products and new markets, right? People need to feel safe that their ideas will be protected, that their thoughts will be protected, that they can express them freely, uh, that the intellectual property, their physical property will be protected, right? They, they need that safety, okay? And, and so our country also needs to resist these authoritarian temptations that have mired other countries in traps. Right, if we if we really are going to take the next step, and this is a point that's made, I mean, not just about Bangladesh, but even a country as impressive as China, right? If you want to ex start expanding the frontier, right? Um, commentators on China say that you need to move to a different type of intellectual regime that allows people to express themselves. Um, so, and competition also matters for innovation. And if competition matters, then you actually allow need to you, know, you need to allow people to compete in the marketplace of ideas, right? That means having a free media that uh, questions policies, right? These are extremely important, and these are some of the worries that I have about the country that we are increasingly seeing pushes towards silencing, uh, and and that's not. I mean, even if you just care about economic growth, that is not the right strategy. Okay? I'll stop there.
Okay, well, I've got, I'm going to pose three questions from the audience to the panel, and please feel free to choose any one or two or three of them in your quick responses of uh, hopefully less than one minute. The first relates to the um, uh, garment, the female garment workers, which is the importance of their rights and wages, and how can they be protected, because they're obviously at, at risk. Um, the second relates to the farmers and the um, can government and social institutions better support growing family-based small-scale farming efforts. And the third relates to the human capital, which is um, what does a government governing class need to do in order to fire up the imagination of younger people in the country to stay and return from higher studies abroad. So I can um, talk a little bit about the uh, returning from higher studies abroad. Um, You're one that has not returned <laughs> thus yes. far, right? Yes, uh, uh, exactly. So now yeah. um, the, um, you know, so in order to, especially uh, given, you know, this is related to the comments I was just making about innovation, right? A a any country to be successful, especially if it's trying to move the frontier, right? has to both retain talent or attract talent, right? This is also true for countries like the United States. It's, I mean, even though it has built up some of the finest institutions in the world, it's not that um, uh, that the education system within the United States where I now live is producing all the talent. We still rely on global talent and the ability to attract that talent, right? So how do you retain talent? This goes back to uh, a comment that Sajid Appa made earlier. It's about they say, say think it's related to urbanization, you need to make a place livable, okay? And so that requires infrastructure investment, that requires uh, what I was talking about, freedom to allow people to, to earn returns off of their ideas and off of their innovations, right? And if people don't feel comfortable that I will earn an economic return, you know, there's no policy that can, um, you know, force people to stay back, right? And that wouldn't be the right policy anyway. Um, Okay, please. Anyone else want to chat, tackle one of these three questions? Right, Zilla. I'll, yeah, I, I just on two of the agriculture and the government workers. On the government workers, uh, I mean, it touches on a bigger issue. I mean, their rights are not limited to the right wages in the factory. They are urban citizens. And therefore, in the urban, as urban citizens, they should have rights to appropriate healthcare and appropriate educational opportunities. And this is a problem, what Sajidawa and others were mentioning about urbanization, that with regard to the urban poor, we haven't really, which is a very growing uh, large category of people, we are looking at them only as economic actors, but as citizens, who, urban citizens who also want and need health and education uh, facilities and rights, that is a big hole actually. And here, I think that's another uh, transition that we may have to make. If you look at the type of progress we made on social sector, health and education, these came about through what I would call a campaign type of approach. We haven't really done well on system building approach. You know, we have got the children into school, but we couldn't improve teaching environment. We got child mortality down, but hospital care is actually in every, and 
out-of-pocket expenses cross 70% of the total expense. So the, in the future, this is going to be a big issue. And with regard to garments, I think we touch it with other urban poor also. We need a very great rethink about the health and so, uh, education infrastructure, which is also accessible to the poor. Regarding agriculture, I'll just make a quick comment about the uh, small farmers. They have been the drivers of whatever transformation is Bangladesh done. But I think from a policy mindset, even from an academic mindset, Bangladesh has looked at agriculture not as a growth driver, but as a security on the issue of food security. That's a guarantee of food security. So the type of public investment which are necessary to transform agriculture also into growth driver is a new agenda. And I think we need to push it, both the government, certainly, but even the academic world also needs to really reimagine agriculture not as the backward sector of yesterday, but a potential growth driver of tomorrow. That's a mindset transformation, I think, for which Bangladesh is now ready. Thank you. Thank you. Sajid, uh, yeah. do you want to make any comments about the future? And yeah, so I, I think uh, one way I would respond to the question about um, the rights and uh, of garment workers um, is um, to, again, go back to the question of soft skills. I think the main way when we look at the life histories of garment workers, the main way they improve on their wages is they um, is one people who have negotiating skills who can jump from job to job. That's basically the only trajectory for wage improvement in the garment sector. So I think the ability to develop soft skills and the ability in particular to develop these negotiating skills uh, is critically important for the garment sector, for their work uh, productivity and their returns, but also for um, to be able to have these benefits spill over to other sectors of life, because those are skills that are transferable across um, different spaces. Good. Um, well, I would like to offer um, at this point, uh, because we've got about 10 minutes left, I think. Um, you've got eight minutes left, um, but would, any of you like to make a final comment about uh, the future, particularly, um, you know, I'm impressed, uh, uh, Faisal, with the, uh, the lack of uh, infrastructure, um, particularly uh, the roads and power in Bangladesh and how that is going to be an enabler or a block. Uh, I'm also impressed, uh, Sajida, with your comment about climate change and how that might affect the especially the, the southern portions of the country. I'm impressed, uh, Zilor, about your emphasis on human capital, uh, but especially the more advanced skills, not just basic literacy, but uh, the more advanced skills. Uh, I, I, Mushfik, um, I'm impressed by your comments about the need for diversification and freedom, essentially, freedom for innovation uh, in uh, the future. But um, would you like each to make a one minute final summation comment about what you what do you think is the most important aspect of the future of the Bangladesh economy? Faisal? Chab, let me just go ahead. I think I would just again, touch back on some of the challenges. I think the macro story I would 
I cannot overemphasize the macro story in Bangladesh is shifting very rapidly. We have to go beyond the growth numbers. What is even the drivers of the growth with the change in technology, climate change in the next uh, decade or so, these are, this is something I think that I cannot overemphasize the state capacity. State capacity, governance, uh, governance in the financial sector, governance in the uh, fiscal sector. And I think there we are far behind to the, some of the other previous takeoffs. Our story is at a critical juncture point and that we should take the celebration of the last 50 years, use that confidence to look at us more critically and with openness as, as something that Mushfiq has highlighted. Thank you. Thank you. Zulur. Yeah. Um, well, I'll uh, sum up in a different way in the sense that, you know, the middle income dream has been a powerful mobilizational sort of uh, tool. But what I see that we, I mean, I can, we can talk about, certainly we have to talk about these uh, particular features of the economy. But Bangladesh has, you know, the people found out solutions where there were difficulties, constraints. We need to allow people to have a say in this finding the solutions. And that's where I feel that one of the key thoughts I want to leave this uh, discussion with is that perhaps the most important agenda for us now is that we need to democratize the middle income dream. We need to make sure the middle income dream is not being dreamt by any particular group in a particular way. We need to allow the different dreamers to have their say in how this dream, and from that, the appropriate action agendas will follow. Thank you. Thank you. Sajida. Hi, so I'm going to be a Debbie Downer a bit and talk about uh, one of the central challenges in my mind um, is captured in the indicators of sexual and gender-based violence. We have the dubious distinction of having some of the highest rates of reported uh, intimate partner violence in the world, and according to the data. We also have the dubious distinction of having the highest rates of child marriage uh, in Asia and only fourth in the world. And I think these are issues that we've, uh, that are linked to security. That's less of a proven connection, but I believe while we, we can expand this whole notion of security, the security space to, um, and focus on these indicators and then dial back to the question of gender and how we have or have not profound, uh, it truly in, included women in the whole agenda on development. Thank you. Mushtik. Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll summarize with one word is livability of the place. So something that shows up in a variety of ways from all the panelists comments. Right, which is that like going forward, right? You want in in order to continue to succeed, you want your talent to and your citizens to be in a place where they're very happy to live, right? So how does it relate to lots of other comments that have been made? So this means investments in infrastructure is critical. You're going to be happy to live in a place where you feel like you have secure access to water, to electricity to basic needs like that, right? And we've made impressive progress. The government should be commended for making impressive progress in 
in um, investing in uh, power generation, right? Um, but there are some other challenges that remain. It's related to migration urbanization as well. Like, you know, uh, cities become unlivable if there's lots and lots of people moving in and we are not making the required investments in housing, safe housing, access to sanitation, access to water and things like that, right? Uh, you're, you know, a place is livable. Also, if you feel like you can, you know, use your talent to earn a return, right? And so if there's, uh, and then this dream, democratizing the dream that Zilrubai talked about, right? If, uh, if you feel like you're in a country where who you're born as, who you're connected to is what determines whether you can dream or not, Right, that's not a good place to be. We're going to lose talent that way, right? And and so um, so increased livability, like thinking about the challenges of urbanization, is something that I would highlight. Thank you very much. Uh, we've had a lively panel. Uh, I you know take away from this that the last fifty years uh, Bangladesh success has come from bottom up. That's come from the enterprise and energy and creativity of its people. And it's not been top down or essentially uh, controlled completely, uh, though the question of how much it empowers and enables uh, the democratic dreams that is necessary for a democratic middle class, middle, middle income country, I think is a challenge. Uh, the human capital and education uh, is Bangladesh is going to be a very different kind of middle-income country. It's going to be a continuum from rural to urban. The whole the whole country is urbanizing essentially um, because of the population size and also the infrastructure that's being put in place. So I think um, the the um, uh, I, I'm impressed with the, the 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 global warming and climate change. Uh, challenges uh, in Bangladesh. But I take away from all of this that Bangladesh people are very, very smart. And the Bengali culture has a power to both unite and to encourage innovation, which may not be found in all societies. So for bringing and highlighting all of that, I want to thank um, Faisal and Zulur and Sajida and Mushfik for a lively panel. Thank you.